Welcome to the Metaphorist's Magazine podcast, your home for beautifully made speculative fiction. The magazine is edited by B. Morris Allen, and I'm your host, Matt Gomez. This week's story is Rosalind Dreams of Airsea by Travis Burnham. Travis Burnham is a speculative fiction writer and science teacher. Originally from New England, he's lived in Japan, Colombia, Portugal, Malta, and the Mariana Islands and currently teaches science at an international school in Montenegro. He's a bit of a thrill seeker, having bungee jumped in New Zealand, hiked portions of the Great Wall of China, and gone scuba diving in Bali. He's got some novels looking for homes and can be found online at travisburnham.blogspot.com. That's T-R-A-V-I-S-B-U-R-N-H-A-M.blogspot.com. Let's jump in. Rosalind was 11 when she got her first hammer, an 8-ounce S-Twing ball peen. She thought it was the most beautiful thing she'd ever seen, though her dad had frowned the whole time she unwrapped it. Rosalind's father's first disappointment had been that Rosalind wasn't a boy. He was a carpenter who dreamed of a son to follow in his manly footsteps. Rosalind couldn't remember a time when she hadn't wanted to be a carpenter, to be a builder, a maker of places people could call home. When she was 13, she ran the third leg of the 400-meter relay at the state track meet, second only to carpentry she loved running, the warm burn in her muscles, and the feel of air brushing against her skin. And she loved the companionship, telling wild stories to her teammates, the shared training and hard work. The team was depending on her points for the meet. On the starting line, her toes were tingling. She thought it must be nerves. But at 300 meters, her left foot went numb to the ankle, and she stumbled to the track surface. Scraped and bleeding, she pulled herself up and hobbled across the finish line. It would have been easier to bear if her teammates or coach had been angry. That night, she had her first seizure, opening a gash in her forehead on the way down to the yellow kitchen linoleum. Nearly the only thing she recalled of the experience was the gentle voice of her older stepsister, Muriel, trying to talk her through it. When, five weeks later, Rosalind was diagnosed with Tyka Starovsky syndrome, she was told she'd be lucky to make it to her 17th birthday. This was Rosalind's father's second disappointment, and he didn't stick around for a third. Rosalind's mother stayed, but was never quite the same after. She'd always been somewhat mousy, and the abandonment drained something vital from her, making it seem like everything she did was just going through the motions. As Tyka Starovsky dismantled Rosalind's body, she raged against fate. She cried. She screamed into her pillow. She shattered plates in the kitchen and smashed her favorite Dark Side of the Moon record. One morning, she woke to her throat still raw and her vision bleary from crying the night before. She could barely feel her right hand. Down in the kitchen, she poured some milk into her lucky charms with her shaky offhand and looked over the room with exhaustion. Her eyes fell upon the fold at the top of the milk carton. Sell by October 26, 23. This milk would go bad in five days. Her eyes fell back to her soon-to-be-soggy cereal as she realized she, too, had an expiration date and would most likely be dead in three years maybe less. She didn't want to spend her remaining days in complaint and misery. She would try hard to be grateful, 
The disease was destroying her ability to do many things, but it left her imagination intact. She had always told stories to her teammates or invented tales for herself about strangers she saw. But what if she were more ambitious? That night, she began constructing an entire world she'd call Airsea in her mind. Airsea began as a single floating stone. Rosalind perched on it with her beloved ball-peen hammer, which she knew was not the best tool for the job, to pound and chip the floating boulder into shape. Made of cloudstone, the stone was a white, porous mineral, flecked with mica and lighter than air. When she needed it, another chunk of cloudstone would appear, rock by rock, stone by stone, boulder by boulder, amid oceans of clouds. The archipelago of Airsea came together. She was a carpenter of worlds. The construction of Airsea wasn't flawless. Sometimes the wrong stone would appear, a piece of dense granite or quartz or marble, and it would fall, shrinking into the unknowable distance. Sometimes she would swing the hammer wrong and a piece of cloudstone would shear off and spin away. She'd hew a forest from cloudstone and breathe life into it, imagining it as verdant green. But as life flowed into it, the leaves would resolve to mother of pearl, and the bark would become noctilucent. As Airsea grew, she'd gaze out over what she'd created, and it was then she'd notice geographical features she hadn't created. A range of low-slung hills, an achingly clear lake filled with cloud-white trout, a forest of cloud firs festooned in white needles. By that time, Muriel had been offered a dream job working for Destinations, a travel website with a monthly magazine. She didn't want to accept it, as she knew it would take her away from Rosalind. Their mother and the nurses were good caretakers, but they couldn't be big sisters. The night before Muriel had to make the decision on the job, she was stretched out in bed with Rosalind, and they were staring at the -the glow-in-the-dark stars on the ceiling. I don't want to leave you, Rosie. The quiet gasping of the respirator was a constant background noise. Rosalind depended on it more and more of late. Being on the respirator was terrible, like she was constantly drowning. But it was even worse without it, like running the 100 meters with a pillow strapped to her face. Rosalind took a deep, raspy breath and said, I need you to see the world for me, Mersey. Please. The more of air sea she built, the more Rosalind realized she was going to see none of her own world. Rosalind would miss Muriel terribly, really couldn't imagine what she would do without her. But even worse was the thought of both of them losing their dreams. She buried all the selfish thoughts that would keep Muriel home. From the pillow next to her, Rosalind took a tattered pink stuffed bunny and tucked it into the crook of Muriel's arm. You can take the Energizer with you. It will be like I'm there too. Muriel turned away for a moment, blinking back tears. Rosalind offering the bunny was a gut punch, a reminder that her little sister was just a little kid, dealing with much more than she should have had to, dying with dignity. In the end, Rosalind begged for Muriel to take the job, and Muriel relented. Muriel sent letters and postcards to Rosalind, She texted photo upon photo upon photo of herself and Energizer from the Altiplano of Colombia with the little stuffed bunny wearing hiking boots and riding on Muriel's shoulders or of the stuffed bunny perched on the walls of Montserrat's castle looking out over the lake-spattered plains of the Portuguese Alentejo. 
yet another of Energizer wearing swimming goggles and being held above the Klein blue waters of Rota in the Mariana Islands. One postcard from the Marianas read, We dove with sea turtles. Okay, Energizer saw them from the dive boat, but still, I'll bring back loads of dive pictures to show you. My love for you is deeper than the Mariana Trench. Heart Mersey. Many of the landscapes Muriel described would find their way into air-sea. Time flowed differently there. Rosalind would doze off and a day would go by among the clouds. But when she woke and looked at the clock, only an hour had passed. But the creating was becoming harder. More and more of the things she hadn't created herself began appearing. It seemed the worst injustice that she was losing control in both worlds. She did her best to reframe the losses in a positive light. Small towns dotted the landscape. She thought of the movie Field of Dreams that her dad had made her watch when she was 11. The main character kept hearing a voice telling him that if he made it, they'd come, or something like that. There were people living in Airsea. Had she given them a place to live? It had always been her ultimate goal as a carpenter, to provide shelter. When Muriel wasn't working or traveling, she was home with Rosalind. Muriel was never negative. She didn't want to waste any of her precious time with Rosalind with complaints. They'd talk far into those nights, reminiscing. Muriel told tales of her travels, the Great Wall, the Great Barrier Reef, the Great Ocean Road, and Rosalind about the changes happening in Airsea, where she was spending more and more time. Muriel was fascinated with the depth of detail Rosalind had for her imaginary Airsea. Do you remember when we made war clubs that winter? Rosalind asked, and then smashed sheets of ice down on the Merrimack? Muriel laughed. You mean those war clubs made out of poison sumac that gave us rashes so bad we missed a week of school, and my left eye actually swelled shut? It was worth it, though, wasn't it? Yeah. Muriel smiled and squeezed Rosalind's shoulder. Worth every minute of itchy torture. And time with you though I remember Dad refused to come near us, afraid we were contagious. Rosalind asked, Do you hate Dad? Yeah. Muriel quirked her mouth to the side, thoughtful. I mean, I don't want him to die, but I hate him for being such a coward and leaving you. Us. How about you? I did for a little while. Now, thinking of him just makes me sad but he lent me his dreams of building beautiful things, so I don't want to waste time hating him anymore. On the next trip abroad, Mersey met Dylan. He was wanderlust personified, with striking eyes of green sea glass, a disarming smile, and an unfortunate love for the 80s band Styx. By the end of what became a shared trip through Torres del Paine National Park, Mersey knew she was in deep. Finally, Airsea wriggles free of Rosalind's creative grasp. She was still able to effect small changes, sweeten a mug of cloudberry wine, darken the feathers of a yord mountain flight, change the shape of a distant stratocumulus cloud. But she was no longer the architect of Airsea. She often felt her life had become an exercise in settling for less, less magic, less running, fewer breaths. No, she'd tell herself. Not settling for less, but embracing what remains. The next postcard read, 
hiking the Torres del Paine circuit, rained all day, you, Energizer, and I got drenched, but Great Glacier is amazing. I love you more than the height of Cerro San Valentin. P.S. I think I've met someone. Heart Mersey. And so Rosalind traveled too, ranging across air sea, a pilgrim in rough clothing trying to squeeze what she could out of every minute she had left. What she'd loved about running, she poured into hiking and exploring air sea. She studied the electric blue icebergs that slid along the surface of Tarn Screer and immersed herself in their blissful silence. Wandering among the massive cloudwoods of Grulith Mons, she wove garlands of their arm-length pine needles. She explored the Gorsezu foothills and passed between the jagged, Hasiped Loam mountains. And then, when Rosalind thought she must be somewhere in her late twenties and air-sea years, she also met someone. Heliotrope was a blacksmith with an incongruous, delicate name. Hells, as she preferred to be called, was most certainly not fragile. She was forge-baked and had the low, deep laugh of a bellows. When Rosalind was in her strong arms, she nearly forgot about home in her dying body. Rosalind learned Vobidian, the language of the southern Farth Gearshade Peninsula, and the most commonly spoken tongue of Ersi, while Hells picked up a bit of English. Back at home, a postcard from Portugal read, took a wine tour in the Baixa Corgo of the Douro River, forgot sunscreen, terribly sunburned, but you, Energizer, and I got buzzed on Vino Verde, so the pain is minimal. I love you more than the number of bridges in Porto. Dylan says hello. Heart Mersey. Muriel found Rosalind more and more detached with every visit, and her health in exponential decline. She began to wonder how Rosalind could possibly still be alive in her wasted body. Muriel hesitated to tell Rosalind about Dylan's proposing atop one of the towers of Kennedy Castle under an Irish sunset. I'm super happy for you, Rosalind said, wishing that she'd be there for the wedding, but knowing she wouldn't be alive that long. I love you, Rosie. You're the best little sister I could have possibly asked for. Muriel never missed an opportunity to tell Rosalind she loved her, because she never knew when it might be the last time. In Ersi, Rosalind poured every last bit of her creation magic into two items, a small cloudstone sculpture of intertwined flowers, a rose and a cluster of heliotrope, and a key that she hoped would do what she asked it to do. Hells asked, Where do you disappear to when you leave me? Because when Rosalind woke in the real world, she disappeared from Ersi. How do you tell your lover that you're from another world and that your body is dying? The tears spilled out of Rosalind. I want you to know how much your love has meant to me. I never expected such a gift in the short time I had. It felt unfair to Rosalind. She had not one, but two worlds to lose. You make it sound like you're dying, Hell said, fear in her voice. I had a life before you, and I fear that life will soon take me away. Rosalind handed her a small package wrapped in white linen. Hells gave a small laugh and handed Rosalind the delicate and intricate pounded copper box in return. Hells said, Looks like you're not the only one giving gifts. When Rosalind lifted the box's cover, she found a fine silver mirror in the felt-lined interior. In the mirror, 
she thought she caught a flash of mercy, Dylan and Energizer, looking out over a serpentine river edged with small terracotta-roofed houses. The image disappeared quickly enough that Rosalind thought she'd imagined it. Then, Hells unwrapped her present to reveal the cloudstone sculpture of intertwined flowers. Rosalind said, And I also want you to have this. Handing Hells the well-loved and well-used ball-peen hammer that Rosalind's father had given to her. Or at least the version she'd created to design Airsea. Was it only a facsimile? When was the last time she'd seen that hammer in the real world? The next morning, Hells woke to an empty bed while Rosalind woke in her gaunt and skeletal body. Muriel was there, and heard Rosalind mutter, Huran Orlazo. Muriel asked, What was that? Muriel knew words in a dozen languages, and could at least recognize a dozen more languages, and this was nothing she'd heard. Rosalind drew in a ragged breath and said, I think I said I love you. In Vibidian, language of Ersi. Muriel then knew that Rosalind was probably measuring her life in days, and maybe less. Rosalind's words hadn't sounded like gibberish, but couldn't have been anything else. Muriel was now with her constantly, afraid to leave her bedside. The next morning, Rosalind managed to force a whisper out. I love you, Mersey. You're best big sister I could have. I love you too, kiddo. Please don't leave me. But Rosalind didn't respond, lapsing into an unmoving silence, her breath shallow, her heartbeat slowing, slowing, slowing. Then Rosalind took her last breath on earth. Muriel held onto Rosalind's hand until it went cool. She'd cried herself dry. Her eyes felt raw and her head ached. Finally, she stood, and then she caught a glint of silver and white in Rosalind's left hand. She was certain it hadn't been there before. How had she missed it? Leaning over, she opened Rosalind's fingers to find a white stone skeleton key with a ball-peen hammer emblazoned on the shank. It was so light it practically floated on her open palm. And then Rosalind, just one moment later, took her first true breath in Ersi, opening her eyes to see Hell's, a worried expression on her face. A postcard rested in Hell's hands. You, Energizer, and I are leaving on the first plane out of Kalispell tomorrow. I'll probably beat this postcard back, but can't wait to see you. Love you to Ersi and back. Heart, Mersey. As Muriel approached the bathroom sink, she couldn't imagine how she'd live in a world without Rosalind. She splashed water on her face and looked at herself in the mirror. She looked terrible. But then, for just a moment, Rosalind's face flickered in the reflection. The mirror shimmered like mercury and a small keyhole appeared on its surface. Muriel hesitated, wondering if any of this was real. Could all of those things that Rosalind had told Muriel about Ersi be true? Maybe this was a portal to oblivion. Rosalind had died. Would Mersey be joining her? And if she left, what about Dylan? Pulling Rosalind's cloudstone key from her pocket, Muriel weighed it in her palm. Looking up at the keyhole, 
she saw that it was smaller, almost imperceptibly. It was shrinking. There was a diminishing window of time to decide. Muriel lived a whole life in a few stretched out moments. She married Dylan. They bought a tiny blue bungalow to live in. They got a little pup, a Portuguese Podengo Pequeno. They named it Azores. Then they had two daughters, Harpa and Isla, born a few years apart. They wrote, they traveled, they loved. Though Muriel thought she'd cried herself dry, a tear slid down her cheek as a single sob was pulled from her. Then she took two deep breaths. Three. Back in Rosalind's bedroom, in one of her desk drawers, Muriel found an envelope and wrote Dylan's name on it. Slipping the engagement ring from her finger, she put it in the envelope and put the envelope on Rosalind's nightstand. She kissed Rosalind on the forehead. I love you to air, sea, and back, Rosie. Standing before the mirror again, Muriel took out her phone. She stopped herself before she scrolled through pictures she and Dylan shared, and instead she opened her messaging app. Tapping on Dylan's name, she typed, If you truly love me, Dylan, you won't come looking for me. I know it sounds far too crazy to be true, but I've gone to Airsea. Heart, Mersey. She hit send. Setting down her cell phone, she put her hands on the edge of the sink to steady her trembling hands. Closing her eyes, she pictured Rosalind and Ersie. Then, opening her eyes and reaching forward, Muriel slid the key into the mirror's keyhole. That was Rosalind Dreams of Ersie by Travis Burnham. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you'd leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to us on. Or, better yet, Share the magazine and podcast with a friend. If you'd like to listen to more speculative fiction, visit us online at magazine.metaphoricist.com or on Twitter at metaphoricistmag.com.